Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Audrea Simonu, coming to you live from Studio B and USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Jamila Hammond. It's Tuesday, September 28th. On today's show, from the rise of cannabis to the rise of crypto, and do students feel safe using rideshare services? All that and more from where we are. So how was your weekend? Did you do anything fun? You know what? Actually, I did. Um, Me and my friends, we spent time in West Hollywood. So we ended up going out. It was actually really fun. How about you? Anything cool? I actually got started on my project on lesbian bars in L.A. County. There was this bar, the Oxwood Inn, that I visited, and it's now being built as an apartment complex. Really? That's super interesting. You know what? Actually, recently, Governor Gavin Newsom signed Senate Bill 9 and 10 into law in mid-September, which will allow more housing units on properties previously designated for single-family zoning. But the fight over local control for land use and zoning decisions is not quite over. Alexandra Applegate reports why opponents to the bill have not lost hope yet. While SB 9 and 10 won't take effect until January 2022, Californians for Community Planning, who oppose the bills, have already filed a ballot initiative that would redirect zoning and land use decisions back to local cities and counties. If they're successful, Californians will get to vote on this issue in November 2022. Groups that have been campaigning for months against the bills, like United Neighbors, are now joining the effort to back the ballot initiative to try to compromise with the state on these approved bills. Maria Pavlou Calbin, who founded United Neighbors eight months ago, said she fully supports the ballot initiative. That's an effort that we will probably get behind with all of our organizations because they're going to need signatures and, and donations. More than 244 California cities, along with the League of California Cities, an association that represents local governments, have voiced their opposition to SB 9 and 10. These groups believe that taking away local control and changing zoning laws will not solve the housing crisis and note that SB 9 and 10 do not have any requirements for affordable housing. Bottom line, nobody understands better than the people in your own community where you want to build. Now, Hacking more and more people into smaller and smaller spaces is not my idea of a great solution. Others do not think California communities will see that much change from these bills. One of them is USC professor and chair of the school's Department of Public Policy, Gary Painter. It's the end of single-family zoning in California, but it's not the end of single-family housing in California. And I think that's an important distinction. And it's only going to move from single-family to multifamily if there's demand from the marketplace to do so. We're going to see, you know, additional housing units built, but it's not going to be a wholesale change in the character of, you know, communities, um, as some might fear. Painter argues that because so many cities in California have historically been against adding housing or density in their jurisdictions, local control is the reason for the housing crisis. Local control has led us to an outcome that has actually harmed affordability in California. It's harmed our you know, families. Um, they're paying higher proportions of their income and rent. And what we need to do is find a path forward that allows for higher levels of affordability in our communities. And the only way to do that is if we kind of enforce from a higher level of government better behavior on all local jurisdictions. 
Regardless of the reality of the bill's implications, the pair of bills have been contested by public agencies, advocacy groups, and individuals across the state. Since the bills were passed, United Neighbors has seen an increase in interest in the organization. More people are now asking how they can get involved, says Pavlu Calvin. We're working with city council members and trying to show them alternatives that we think would be better and trying to work within the system to see how we can all win on a situation like this. Californians for Community Choice will need to gather almost one million signatures from California voters to get their proposed ballot initiative on the 2022 ballot. For Annenberg Media, I'm Alexandra Applegate. The U.S. could face another government shutdown this week as the Senate has failed to agree on discretionary spending levels. Lawmakers have until Thursday to authorize funding for many government programs before the next fiscal year starts. Anthony Robledo has more on what services may halt and how federal workers could be affected. On Monday, Senate Republicans blocked a House-passed bill pushed by Democrats to raise the federal borrowing limit. Democrats are relying on this bill to keep the government funded through the fiscal year, which starts on October 1st. They also hope to prevent a default on national debt, which could forge a global economic crisis. Republicans voted to raise the debt ceiling when they controlled Washington. Now they are arguing that the political burden belongs to Democrats, who now control the White House and both houses of Congress. While divided on extending the borrowing limit, senators face a Thursday deadline to pass the 12 appropriations bills to prevent a government shutdown by the end of the week. According to the Committee for a Reasonable Budget, the shutdown could leave air travel and IRS employees working without pay. Food stamp benefits and FDA inspections are likely to pause. A shutdown could also cause national parks to turn away millions of visitors like it did in 2013, or lead into an increase in damage and trash buildups like in 2018. On Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told lawmakers that if they don't increase the debt limit soon, the government may be unable to pay its bills in a few weeks. It would be disastrous for the American economy, for global financial markets, and for millions of families and workers whose financial security would be jeopardized by delayed payments. For Annenberg Media, this is Anthony Robledo. A case of sexual harassment by a Lyft driver near campus was reported last Saturday. Students rely on this service and the university even partners with Lyft in their safe ride program. The news has left students reevaluating the security of this so-called safe ride. Tess Padden has more. This past weekend, students received a DPS notification regarding a sexual battery case that occurred in a ride chair. A USC student fell asleep and was inappropriately touched by the driver on the way to her destination. In light of this news, students have raised questions about how safe these ride programs are and what additional precautions the university should consider for the future. Senior Jordan Evans was shocked to read the news. And I always read the DPS emails. It definitely was jarring. Um, (laughs) I hope that was like not only reported to DPS, but also like Lyft as well. Annenberg Media has reached out to Lyft, but we did not receive a comment. As the potential for these instances continues, students are becoming increasingly aware of nearby dangers. These DPS notifications have prompted many students, including Jordan Evans, to reconsider their relationship with the rideshare program. 
and it's scary to know that it happens so close to school and like especially because I've had the same thrift drivers a few times like they tend to stay in the area and to know that this person could possibly have been around campus before um, hopefully they're not around campus again um, but this likely isn't the first time it's happened um, which is really scary to think about um, I'm glad the incident was reported, so hopefully we can get that person out of our space. Since fall 2021, USC has been solely partnered with Lyft for its rideshare service. The program grants students access to fully paid Lyft rides, fondly deemed frifts, as in free Lyft, anywhere within a two-mile radius of campus from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. Freshman student Daphna Aslan speaks on her experience with the Safe Ride program in her short time at USC. Like having the, the system is like super reassuring and I do feel like safe with all the people who like are Lyft drivers because I don't know like school sponsored like and also I've like had conversations with a lot of them. This service has become essential to many students. However, a naive trust in the service can place students in a vulnerable position with potentially dangerous strangers. I do know that it's like bad to obviously not blindly trust people but things like this like the DPS like notification that we got like my friends and I we were just like so like we're not riding alone ever <laughs> and we're not riding when we're like I guess like not in like the right state. Living in downtown LA comes with its own unique challenges for college students. Many students are learning to pivot in how they interact with the Lyft service. One Marshall student, Lynn Gwynn, addresses the bigger problems of sexual assault on our campus and how issues such as the one over the weekend extend into various facets of our university. I just think sexual assault is like a big problem in general on college campuses. And like, like most girls I know feel like really unsafe about it. So like, I hope in the future more can be done to like have greater campus safety. Gwynn said she will continue using the rideshare service, but she'll bring her taser with her. For Annenberg Media, I'm Tess Patton. Another electric scooter accident happened near campus this month, leaving a USC student in the hospital with serious injuries. Emergency room visits because of e-scooter accidents have been spiking in recent years as the mode of transportation has become more popular. San Reno, Sam Reno spoke with students about the recent accident and the safety of scooters on campus. USC student and treasurer of the Kappa Alpha fraternity, Tai Kawamura, was riding a Lime scooter on 28th Street near Frat Row when an SUV struck him. Kawamura suffered multiple injuries, including skull fractures, a torn liver, and a collapsed lung as a result of the accident. USC student Trish Bazari is a friend of Kawamura. It's been pretty life-changing, I would say. It was really horrific, like I said, getting a FaceTime call from him while he was in the hospital and him yelling for help and just seeing his face on the camera. It's absolutely bleeding from everywhere. We still don't know if this is going to impact him for the rest of his life. We hope not, but we're just hoping for the best. This isn't the first electric scooter injury this month. According to DPS logs, five electric scooter-related incidents have occurred so far this month. All five accidents involved a motor vehicle. The heightened risk is not lost on Bazzari and his friends, who say they won't be riding again anytime soon. I love scooters, always rode them. Used to do it this semester with all my best friends too, and just don't get on them. I'm, I'm never doing it again, and I hope no one else will either. For others, like USC freshman Gavin Roberts, the dangers of these personal modes of transportation, like Lime's electric scooters, are largely avoidable with some care and attention. 
I think every time that I've really been in a crash or accident has been when I wasn't paying attention or when I was dozing off or looking at something in the distance. Despite the recent incident, Roberts will keep riding. Me personally, I feel comfortable riding an electric scooter. I feel safe doing it. I have coordination. I don't feel at risk when riding one. USC grad student Courtney Call has ridden with Lyme before, and she shares Robert's sentiment that safety is largely in the hands of the rider. It really depends on you on how you ride it. So you're very responsible of your own safety on it. And so if you want to be very safe, it's not that hard, but you can easily also be very reckless with it. Universities such as San Diego State University have moved to ban all motorized scooters, but pushback forced them to settle on stricter restrictions and no ride zones. USC's current rules regarding electric scooters only force riders to adhere to California vehicle laws, which state riders must use the road and not exceed the 15 mile per hour speed limit. Their use is also prohibited in crowded areas such as the USC Village. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sam Reno. Marijuana use by college students is on the rise. Alcohol consumption is going down. This is according to a recent study. Jack Reed looks at why. As college students around the world return to campus, the National Institute on Drug Addiction reports that college use of marijuana has escalated by 6%, while use of alcohol has gone down by the same amount. In the heart of Los Angeles, many USC students feel that this trend is especially reflected here. There are a lot of students lighting up, says business administration student Gabby Ellis. Here, um, there is a lot of encouragement towards like using it as like a stress reliever or just like as something to do like pre-party, pre-game, anything like that. At least I haven't experienced like pressure from somebody like you need to do it. Like the people who do it, they stay on their lane and they respect like other people who True. don't do it. That's film production major Diego Jose. Where I come from, I'm from Mexico, and like it's not legal and stuff. So the first week, like <laughs> I saw a bunch of people like at night smoking and stuff. So of course, recreational marijuana is now legal in California, and it's easier than ever to get. But business admin student Gabby Ellis offers another reason why weed use might be on the rise, while drinking is losing a bit of popularity. I think marijuana could be like a healthier alternative. It could be healthier even in the long run, says Professor Antonio Damasio, who teaches philosophy, psychology, and neurology at USC. Is that if you, if you are a consumer of marijuana, you tend to be not only have less long-term consequences, but probably you are less likely to be addicted to alcohol. Damasio says that the need to escape or cope somehow grew a great deal during the COVID pandemic. We're dealing with a huge cause of trauma, a huge cause of suffering. Now, anytime that there's suffering, whether it is in the middle of a crisis or just in the course of a normal life of a human being, you tend to medicate yourself, quote unquote. And whether that medication is going to be with a formal drug to be a tranquilizer or alcohol or uh, um, marijuana, it doesn't make any difference. COVID has complicated our lives, increased isolation, and decimated our social lives. But Professor Damasio says that no matter what the preferred method of trying to cope, here's the thing to remember. It's, it's still a human being trying to alleviate suffering. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jack Reed.
I'm Jamila Hammond. We're glad you're with us from where we are. And I'm Audrey Simonu. It's 21 minutes past the hour. Coming up, Thornton students discuss practicing outside and what does sustainable look like for USC students. Cryptocurrency, a form of digital money, is believed by many to be the currency of the future. Bitcoin prices have once again tumbled, but this is not the first time, nor will it be the last, that we see this. So why is there still such an interest in cryptocurrencies despite their volatility? Wilco Martinez Chaquero has more. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies plummeted to start the week. Nitin Kale, a professor at USC Viterbi, explains. Um, this is uh, happens time and again that within a short period of time, uh, some currencies or many, many currencies uh, uh, will uh, appreciate or, or fall uh, at the same time in reaction to news, uh, uh, you know, global news. Uh, but often this reaction is, is to national news, economy, uh, and most importantly, uh, about regulation. But despite how crypto fluctuates, the interest in it continues to grow. A recent CNBC survey found that 1 in 10 people currently invest in crypto. El Salvador even became the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender a few weeks ago. So why are people so into crypto? Here is Luca Sturati, a finance student at Holt International Business School in Boston. Many of my friends and fellow finance students are into crypto and they invest heavily in their firm believers. And I feel like that's because um, crypto is kind of an outsider, misfit, rebellious form of currency that opposes to government uh, because it's unrestricted uh, and it's very easy to use, easy to get, and governments have a hard time trying to control it. And that's why I think a lot of young people really get into it. And a lot of these young people see crypto as the future of currency, adds president of USC blockchain, Harrison McDonald. I think it's it's only natural that people view crypto as you know the future of currencies because you know we sort of have this dilapidated system um, that not very many that not very many people trust in. You know the banking system is full of corruption and you know favors and it's basically like a bro club. But Sturati is not convinced. I'm not interested in crypto because it's very reliant on governments allowing it to happen, even though it's decentralized. Uh, so it's extremely dependent on a whole bunch of other factors. And I feel like I could use my knowledge better to, to look at a company and determine. As of now, the crypto economy looks to continue being unpredictable, but that is unlikely to dissuade amateur traders from investing in it, even as the markets ebb and flow yet again. For Annenberg Media, I'm Wilco Martinez Cachero. During COVID, we are all taking steps to avoid breathing on each other. But what if your breath is your art? If you are a brass or woodwind instrument major, how do you keep playing and avoid spreading the virus? Jason Chua asked a few wind players about their craft and practicing in the pandemic. Have you been enjoying those outdoor concerts around campus? At USC's Thornton School of Music, COVID guidelines put brass and woodwind players, like trumpets and clarinets, in a tough position. They still practice hours a day, just not the way they used to. At least from my understanding, basically we can practice in Gateway or like in our own apartments, but that's about it. Like there can never be more than one of us in a room at a time. So classrooms are all off limits as well, I think. That is Neha Kudva, 
a tuba major from New York. She's at one of the places she mentioned, University Gateway. Thornton has acoustically treated practice rooms here. It's rows of glass doors into tiny rooms with plastic-wrapped pianos and air purifiers. You can somewhat hear Neha practicing in the background. To comply with the rules, I couldn't be in the room as she practiced. In the hallway, I ran into Kabana Samson Davis, a grad student studying classical trumpet. He's waiting for a practice room. They're a valuable commodity to Thornton students, where practice is everything. To, to make sure I'm getting it, in the first few weeks, I definitely thought I was um, not getting enough time, and it was really stressing me out. But I, I mean, I still wish I could practice more. I think we all do. <laughs> so. The current policy is comprehensive, requiring woodwind and brass players to practice alone indoors or with others outside. Times of day, um, my earliest rehearsal is uh, 9 in the morning, and my latest one ends at 9 p.m. Um, and it, you know, the temperature does drop off quite a bit in the evening, and I had to learn the hard way. Rob Cutieta is the dean of the Thornton School of Music. I spoke to him about the new guidelines. I know people are loving seeing it's like free concerts, but it's not good for our musicians to be, you know, working outside. You know, we are requiring anybody who is aerosol producing or involved with that has to be vaccinated. And when you say aerosol producers, you're referring to the wind players, the brass players and singers. Mm -hmm. Okay, just to make sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are the aerosol producers. Singers have the benefit of being able to wear a mask. Brass and woodwind players can't do that. And being a musician is much more than just solo work. Practicing as an ensemble can be challenging, especially as practice spots are limited. Here's Samson Davis again. Last week, um, we were on the schedule to, to um, my quintet was on the schedule to rehearse in the Ramo Lawn Canopy Tent, and um, someone was having a lesson there, uh, was supposed to be there, but um, that, was, that was a challenge, and we had to, you know, quickly adapt and find another place, and by then, maybe 20 minutes had passed. And... Space reservation issues aren't unique to tents. But Dean Cutieta is hopeful for changes later in the semester. We're working on it. That's all I can say. Yeah, I, yeah. It's we all know it's not ideal. Um, that's why we built the, um, you know, the tents around with the flooring in it because the flooring is very important. For reference, the tents have hard wooden floors, which reflect sound better than grass. We have to make sure it's totally safe before they come inside, and that's what we're going to do, because we don't want to end their career at this point. So they've worked too hard to get to that point. With COVID-19 being a respiratory illness, it can be career-ending for wind players. Dean Cudietta explains. All those people depend on a lot of breath support. And so if they were to have something that would damage their lungs, it could be career-ending. There's a lot at stake. So, and we want to get it right. We don't want to go... Um, we don't want to go back remote. And so whatever hoops we have to jump through, we're willing to do that. Dean Cudietta is coordinating with county officials to revise guidelines for collegiate music instruction. Thornton students can expect policy changes in the coming weeks. The rest of us, enjoy those free concerts while they last. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jason Chua.
In light of Green Week at USC, we must ask the question, how sustainable are Trojans? You might be surprised at the answer. In a new report from the Office of Sustainability, USC has reached 85% of the environmental goals outlined in their 2020 sustainability plan. However, Trojans believe that the university can do more. I don't know how much USC is actually doing its part as such a big institution. And I'm curious about how much of, I'm curious about how much aesthetic is given more attention than actual sustainability. And that includes the effects that the campus has on the region outside of the campus as well. In some ways they are, and in some ways they aren't. I've noticed in the dining halls, they envision like um, Trojans don't waste, envision yourself a waste-free campus. But then like they have us using like plastic or paper plates, and then we have to throw all of the food that we didn't finish eating away rather than compost it. So they're taking steps, but there's still more that needs to be done. Some parts I think could be improved. At the water bottles, I don't see as many fountains like other school had that just allowed you to like, put your water bottle there and like to refill. In my home country, especially in some big cities, we like categorize different things for recycle. But here, I do not see a lot of things like that. I mean, USC is a very powerful institution and just the fact that it's not known for sustainability itself, that's not one of the things you, that you think about when you think of USC, so they probably for sure can do more. Just really enforcing the separating waste between like plastic and recycling and compost. It's definitely needed going forward, especially with increasing emissions and to like help combat like climate change and stuff like that. I've also started going plastic free slowly, like one at a time, like instead of using plastic containers that have soap and conditioner and shampoo, I use soap bars. I try to, you know, I recycle, I garden, I compost. Yeah, and it all kind of just a part of my daily life. USC makes the list of the Princeton Review's green colleges, but its sustainable efforts are not as impressive compared to other universities in the state. On the list of green college honor roll are top private institutions, Loyola Marymount University, with solar energy accounting for 50% of its power, and Stanford University, which committed to reach carbon neutrality by 2030. In February, the Investment Committee of the USC Board of Trustees announced it was freezing its investments in fossil fuels and divesting from existing fossil fuel holdings. On Wednesday, the university announced the official rating of its sustainable efforts via email. The Sustainability Tracking Assessment and Rating Systems, also known as STARS, gave USC a silver rating, which is, quote, higher than they were initially initially expecting, end quote. Mick Del Del Rey Mole, the chief sustainability offer, offer, uh, said to, quote, realize this is only the starting point, end quote. And the university is, quote, settling, setting its much more lofty goals for achieving sustainability, end quote. This report was done with the help of Esther Quintanilla. Our love of fashion is weighing heavily on the planet. 
Americans each throw away an average of 70 pounds of clothing a year. But it doesn't have to be this way. There's a global movement to change this, to embrace, reuse, and repair our clothes. Can a person store or even make a dent in this global issue? Sofia Fernandez spoke with practitioners of the movement to find out. The streets leading to Sway Sew Shop are short and narrow. Sway is a retail store that upcycles discarded clothing and hosts community dye baths, where anyone could give new life to that once white, now yellow t-shirt. This is the Elysian Valley neighborhood of Los Angeles that's known as Frogtown. Sway's parking lot is by a dead-end street against the LA River. The storefront has two entrances, one for the retail store where they sell upcycled home furnishings and clothes, The other door is for repairs, alterations, and the sew shop. We are, you know, very much operating um, in a way that invites and welcomes and encourages the local community to participate. Rebecca Blake-Thompson is Sway's Director of Development. We strongly believe that we can create models that could then be implemented by communities all over the world. One of the neighbors who comes to Sway is Nicole P., who'd rather dye her clothes here than at home. I'm doing it in my bathroom. So I was like, oh, this will be easy and it'll bring new life to some of the stuff I have. The shop features a few different colors for dyeing each month. Cindy Villaseñor, known as Siraway Cindy, oversees the intake of clothes for repairs and dye baths on Saturdays. Yeah, we have uh, Baltic blue right there. We have forest green and then we have lavender. Via Senor sits behind a simple wood table with a scale for weighing and pricing out clothing that customers bring in. The dyes look different on the fabric swatches in person than they did online. The lavender is prettier than expected, not a retirement home purple. Via Senor methodically records information about the clothes. She assigns them to their color selections and bundles them in plastic bags. I put them in here just so keep them contained for now. And then um, our header repairer usually goes through each one, takes pictures of it uh, with a ticket number so like that we have an actual description of it. It does all go together. And then they'll go into a bin of what color you uh, chose. And then it uh, ends up going to the dye The bag. cataloging process can take a long time, but no one seems to mind. Nicole picks up the clothes that she dropped off at the last dye bath and can't wait to see how they turned out. <laughs> I love it. It looks amazing. All right, awesome. Okay. What color was that before? White. This was like a light pink, and that looks cool. It was like kind of a light washed out pink, and that looks really cute. And this was white. And that was supposed to be yellow, but now it's sort of off white. Okay. All right, cool. All right. right. You are all set. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dying clothes isn't a new phenomenon. But after what we've all been through these past years, the time seems right for renewal. The dye bath doesn't know your politics. It doesn't care about social media followers or income or trends. Its purpose is transformation. Visible mending, the art of creating something new through repair, follows a similar philosophy. The stitch is the story. It invites conversation. It heals ruptures. I don't think it's just a trend. I think it's going to become a necessity. Haven Lynn Kirk, dean of USC's Roski School of Art and Design, is shepherding a mending and sewing workshop series here on campus. When we met, she was wearing a sweater with two patches of visible stitching. 
when you talk about something that is precious to you, that is an object, oftentimes it's something that, you know, it has either some personal connection, like it belonged to, you know, your mom or your, your dad or your grandmother or somebody gave it to you. You won't get the same energy from the latest throwaway blouse at the mall. You know, the, the new objects that we buy, the new products that we buy, they don't have that personal attachment. And so I, I do think that part of what's happening right now, you know, whatever you want to call it, this make men, this, it's not just recycling any longer and repurposing any longer. It's, it's kind of holding on to the things that we really do value. Consumption is the corporate American way, but individual decisions are powerful too. Sway's Rebecca Blake Thompson says it starts with each of us. We as consumers have the power to say, I can work with what I got. I can take responsibility for what I already have. I can mend the items I have and I can feel good that that is important and that that is doing something good. I can take responsibility for my choices, responsibility for my consumption. Sway regular Nicole is opting into the movement. I want to minimize my impact as much as possible. Nicole is doing her part to offset the continual churn of fast fashion and its overwhelming waste. I'm not participating in it. And I don't want to participate in things that are, like, you know, detrimental to the earth. Revitalizing garments is about much more than the clothes we wear. It gets to the heart of who we are and our core values. With the COVID-19 pandemic still affecting us, author, poet, and social justice activist Sonia Renee Taylor reminds us, we should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment one that fits all of humanity and nature. For Ampersand Radio, I'm Sophia Fernandez. Visit USC's Visions and Voices website to learn more about the Roski School's Mending and Dyeing Workshops. The next event is December 6th at the USC Fisher Museum Courtyard. And that's all we have for on today's From Where We Are. Today's show was produced by Paulina Cherezova, Jeffrey Lee, and Fernando Cienfuegos. We also got help from Shirley Jahad, Gabrielle Horton, and Guillerme Guillero. Fernando Cienfuegos is our technical operator, and Derek Renfro composed our theme music. We are also streaming live on KXSC. Follow KXSC at kxsc.org slash listen. And on YouTube at Annenberg Radio News. Subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you're looking for more news, be sure to download Annie Annenberg's news app. And look for us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Annenberg Media. I'm Jamila Hammond. And I'm Audrey Simonu. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again for From, From Where, Where We, we are. are.